brace yourself because you're about to dive into another free first hour episode of the Higher Side Chats. And we just want to let you know that whether you're looking for a companion through your paranoid insomnia, entertaining yourself through one of life's mundane activities, or trying to ward off the internal screams of all those sad, smothered souls around the office, THC is here. And you should know that every episode of the Higher Side Chats has an entire second hour for Plus members. Sign up at thehiresidechatsplus.com and you'll get years of Plus show archives, lifetime forum access, a special invite to Greg Carlwood's monthly joint sessions, MP3s of THC music, bonus episodes, tour videos, and 10% off t-shirts, grinders, and whatever else ends up in the Higher Side store. It's $8 a month that you won't miss. So become a Plus member and treat yourself in these troubled times. Always action-packed and commercial-free, which means you'll unfortunately never hear my voice again. But I am psyched about this. I definitely loved the book or the two books put into one volume. You know, the connection between the occult and the sci-fi aliens is something we've talked about before, but... Not to this depth, and it's really crazy to me that this book came out in the 90s and I only just learned about it, because it's it's very good. Well, the original edition of Secret Cipher came from Illuminat Press. At the time, that was you know one of the major publishers of both UFO and conspiracy stuff, a strange combination at best. And sure enough, Authors and ultimately the publisher mysteriously died off, mm. leaving George Andrews and me. <laughs> I mean, Harry Thornley is gone, and Jim Keith, who died under very mysterious and unlikely circumstances, is gone. And ultimately, Ron Bonds went to dinner with his wife and developed, quote, food poisoning, which nobody else in the restaurant that they were in developed. And within hours, which is the way food poisoning works, died. So that was the end of Illuminate Press. And it sold out, the first edition. But I think there was a long, long pause between the time that that edition went out of print. And as is always the case with the vipers out there in the Second-hand market, which, by the way, I get no royalties from. Not that that particularly matters to anyone other than poor, poor Alan. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, it matters to me, but not, you know, it's not my first concern. My first concern is to get the information out there. Between the first publication and publication of Secret Rituals of the Men in Black, it was a 10-year period. Why, you may say, were you afraid of whoever is killing off these other people? No, because I sleep with a gun under my pillow and a knife in my right hand. (laughs) (laughs) I'm just fine, he said as he sank to the floor. Well, that would be fine to do because the people in the apartment under me might get, you know, they're elderly and might not understand. But in any case, what happened was, the illustrious Grand Poobah of the Ancient Order of Antiquity, to which I then belonged, we were driving from North Carolina to Atlanta because I talked him into doing an initiation that needed to be done that was above my pay grade. 
gave me this long lecture on why I should not be doing UFO books as they were not respectable. Mm. <laughs> and, you know, I mean, in the relative order of things, I mean, this is all marginalia to the public out there, but there are relative orders of margin, and the fact is that UFOs have a lot more public acceptance than the occult, which is assumed to be demonic or whatever. Right. But nevertheless, he was a guy in charge, and I, at that time, cared uh, what he thought. So I put off publishing the second book and then published it with a long footnote uh, addressed indirectly to him and to other people that are in that same category saying you best know what you're talking about before you talk about it. I believe that note is reproduced in the current edition of the Complete Secret Cipher of the Euphonauts, which I think is now the definitive edition. In any case, I haven't been affiliated with that cult in 15 years, and I haven't been really emotionally affiliated with it since I decided it wasn't an organization. It's a cult. And I'm just not a cultist. I don't want to wind up in the Branch Davidian compound, burning up at the behest of some exalted puba or ruler. Not that I'm saying this particular one is that extreme. It's just, it's just wrong, you know. Fair, fair. And uh, cool. All right. Let me uh, knock out this intro and we'll really dive into it. You mean all that wasn't on the air? I got it recorded. I'll throw it in there. I'll throw it in there. That was good. It's a good preamble to, uh, to the book. Okay, great. In the 1930s, President Franklin Delano Roosevelt addressed the nation through a series of radio broadcasts known as the Fireside Chats. His aim was to reassure the common man that our society would recover from its troubled times. Well, we're far from 1930, and I deal with a different kind of fire. For a new era of worldly frustration, we offer a fresh conversation. I'm Greg Carlwood, and these are the Higher Side Chats. Well, abracadabra and open sesame, people. From sunny San Diego, I'm Greg Carlwood. And I hope your seat backs and tray tables are in the upright lock position because we're going on one hell of a ride today. Of course, we've all heard the debate over the little green men with almond eyes that go bump in the night. Are they advanced aliens from a distant planet or ancient ethereal entities that have been interacting with man since maybe the beginning of time? And what about Bigfoot, Mothman, and the rich Northern European lore of fairies? It might be easy to say these are all parts of the same thing, but it's still hard to get a bead on what that thing even is. And the fact that paranormal and high strangeness researchers are so compartmentalized only makes the problem worse. But when you examine cases like Crowley's channeling of Iwas, the Seth material, the story of John D. and Edward Kelly, or even something like the Shaver mystery, it seems like whenever you tap into a strong signal, the first thing these beings deliver is a language of some sort. And is it possible that the preservation of these coded languages and contact methods has been the basis for secret societies from ancient Babylonian priesthoods right on through to modern Freemasonry? Well, today's guest Alan Greenfield certainly thinks so, and he breaks it all down in his two books, The Secret Cipher of the Euphonauts and The Secret Rituals of the Men in Black. 
Books he wrote back in the 90s that have now been reprinted as a single volume by Paranoia Publishing called The Complete Secret Cipher of the Euphonauts, a one-two punch that is still as poignant today as ever. You might have seen Alan and his secret cipher featured in the popular paranormal series Hellier, where letters from a man seeking refuge from a group of little green goblins that were emerging from a cave to harass his family sent the research team down a winding rabbit hole of high strangeness. For the unfamiliar, Alan is not only a 35-year veteran of ufology and UFO investigative work, he's also been an occultist since 1960 and has practiced ceremonial magic almost as long. He also spent two decades climbing the ranks of the OTO, only to leave the structured organization for a more independent and individualistic path to illumination called the Free Illuminist Movement. This is going to be a fun one, and I'm psyched to get into it. A consecrated bishop in the esoteric Gnostic spiritual tradition and the code crack and sage of the cipher, Alan Greenfield, welcome to the higher side. I'm so glad to be here. You've said everything that I need to say, so I bid you all good night. <laughs> <laughs> I'll see you. I'll see you. Don't take any wooden nickels. Goodbye. <laughs> oh, no, really? I mean, you were right on the money there, so that's great. I try. I try. And this is a real treat. I loved the complete secret cipher of the Euphonauts. It goes very deep in connecting modern ufology to contact rituals of occult traditions. And it starts off with a bang, breaking down the basic premise into 11 bullet points. And I won't read them all, but right off the bat, you say, first, some people among us are in the know about the UFO phenomena, which have manifested throughout history. Certain people have known the nature of this phenomena and have used its nature for almost just as long, which is a hell of a way to start a book when most people consider these things to still be a mystery. It seems the further we go back, the harder it is to be sure about anything. But what could you tell us about this deep history of contact to really get the ball rolling here? Well, the first thing that needs to be observed is that there has been communication with these what's-its of various stripes, as you delineated, you know, the cryptids and UFOs and even things like ghosts and apparitions and UFO phenomena and all of these things that seem to operate stripped to their core in the same manner, suggesting that they are something that has always been with us. There have always been people who have communion, to borrow Witt's term, with these sources. And, you know, my mind leaps immediately towards like entities. I don't know if they're entities. I'm not even sure we can know. You know, maybe that's a bad thing to say, but yeah. we can know things about how it manifests and where it will manifest, even if you use the cipher that I put in complete secret cipher of the euphonauts and have demonstrated myself to my own satisfaction anyway. I want other people to do their own experiments and either validate or disconfirm, you know, my approach to it. But I think that a certain tiny percentage of the people that come into communication, I'm avoiding the word contact because it has different connotations now, with this, what's it, actually become interactive with it, grow into it, and become what 
the BSRA, which is the longest standing organization that looks at these things, and started out with Mead Lane at the helm, who was both a proto-ufologist and a well-read occultist, concluded that there are guardians. There are beings who are sort of the equivalent of in Eastern Buddhist legend and lore, bodhisattvas, that is, beings who start out as ordinary human beings, just like thee and me, or at least thee, I have <laughs> my doubts about me, and gradually through various stages ascend into uh, communion with the whatever the what's it may be, singular or plural, and choose not to leave us here, but rather become our tutelary beings and guardians. And that is the term that in its early days in the 1940s that Mead Lane and the BSRA used, thus his book, The Coming of the Guardians. And there are different names, the Secret Chiefs of the Third Order, which is a term that you hear in occult, or used to hear a lot in occult circles. Now it's frowned on because it's not PC. You know, that's the way our world operates. If you don't play by the current rules, then you're considered an outsider or a radical or whatever it is. Well, I'm outside and I'm radical, but that's neither here nor there. Mm. I'm fearless because I'm old. So what are they going to do? It's the advantage of age. I mean, I I actually, I've been involved in all of this work since 1960, and that's a good deal more than 35 years. But I can't count that high anymore because, you know, the line starts to go at 60 or 65 or something. But I'll try to bring it back from the mists of the fog of mine. And What has happened in the last several months, if I may say so, is what I had hoped would happen when the late Ron Bonds at Illuminate Press was good enough to give me my first break as a book. I mean, I had lots of articles published, but Secret Cipher was the first commercial book that I wrote. And I expected that people would take up the cipher, go, Gosh, well, let me try this because Greenfield is clearly wrong. Find out that the cipher actually works in terms of predictive behavior, which is one of the missing scientific elements in paranormal research, in ufology, in ghost lore, in cryptid research. These things in field research and anything, getting exact circumstances to reproduce themselves is very hard. But of course, in laboratory experiments, if what you're dealing with is the real McCoy, it's relatively easy. So the scientific formulation is that you don't credit it if it isn't reproducible. And it doesn't mean you can't grab a headline, but if you want recognition in the scientific sense, you have to be able to reproduce the original experiment. Well, my argument was if you use the cipher on key cases, that is, those that produce a strange name or a strange, quote, planetary, unquote, origin, then you're going to be able to predict the next big case. 
And I had anticipated that people would take this up, if only to disprove it, and then get amazed or amused, depending on their results. It didn't happen that way. People in America today, and keep in mind the book was coming out more or less at the time that people were, I don't know what term to use, tuning into the Internet for the first time and getting the first primitive cell phones. And, of course, they had been watching junk television since before I was born, which is kind of scary. (laughs) Um, And they're spectators for the most part. I'm not disrespecting anyone. That's something that has been thrust upon people. Look at the bauble and not at the reality. I remember a, a cartoon which shows a father and son sitting in front of the TV. And the father has his arm around his son, and they're watching a sunrise on TV. But you can see behind them a window where the real sun is really rising. And it raises questions. Why don't they look out the window, you know? Yeah, yeah, these times. <laughs> and, and I thought, yeah, there you go. They want me to do the hard work. So for a long time, people would say, well, prove it. I said, well, work with the cipher. And you tell me if you find no results, make it public and I'll own up to it. If you find really good results, as I suspect you will, own up to that. And that's what I'm trying to do. But fast forward through several obscure editions, which when they were out of print, sold for exorbitant sums of money, as any number of my books have. The book I wrote on the quasi-Masonic Rite of Memphis, or if you prefer, the Masonic Rite of Memphis, or if you really prefer, just the Rite of Memphis. When it went out of print in the original edition, the way these things work for you people that are not in the writing or publishing game is that once it goes out of print and comes part of the secondary market from the rare book stores or whatever, the price goes way up, but the original author gets nothing. That's how the Three Stooges wound up in the old actor's home. They failed to get residuals on any of the things that you see. So if you enjoy the Stooges, feel guilty. (laughs) Yes, yes. Uh, Publishing and entertainment, they are dirty games. And so when you talk about the occultists or the groups who work with these entities and the ciphers, you write about how they become intertwined with the phenomena itself. And that is a big part of the Hellier series, is a big part of the Mothman saga. Things get messy and the synchronicities can get so potent that you think you're going crazy. But then you say the fully illuminated are in control of reality to the extent that the mythos itself is in control. They also, in a very real sense, acquire its intangibility. And that's very provocative. And I hoped we could maybe elaborate on that. What does it mean to acquire its intangibility? Well, I don't think that those people that start out as people and wind up being guardians or secret chiefs or that now very debatable archaic term, the Great White Brotherhood, 
when I think about that, I think of guys with sheets over their heads dancing around a burning cross. And that is not not what I think Madame Blavatsky had in mind, although one wonders uh, <laughs> at times. But you're no longer dealing with human beings in the three-dimensional sense. You're dealing with advanced beings who choose to be guardians of humanity, not go on to higher things, which since I'm still here, I can't really describe except to say you become totally part of the phenomena itself. And what form it takes, I think, is probably a matter of choice more than anything else, whether it's a big, hairy skunk ape that appears and disappears in the same way as a UFO might appear and disappear, or a ghost, or um, apparition, or religious apparition, or any of those things. That's a matter of something resembling choice. Now, for us that are on this side of the wall, that appears to be, either depending on one's orientation, a religious phenomena, or a magical phenomena, or something that is just totally inexplicable. But I have a hunch that it follows its own rules and takes forms that are designed to accomplish something. The thing is, when you are attempting to understand that phenomena, you gradually get immersed in it. And the way you know you're getting immersed in it is that the number of synchronicities that happen in your life and around you increase incrementally as you get closer and closer to whatever the what's it may be. And what I started to say was the thing that did not happen when uh, the original version of Secret Cipher came out, but what is certainly happening synchronously with the complete Secret Cipher of the Euphonauts is that the impact of the Planet Weird People's Hellier experience, which is the most authentic documentary I have ever seen of a field investigation. It's miles and miles and kilometers and kilometers, for those listening in Europe, that ahead of ordinary understanding of these manifestations. I, I grope for words because I'm just as in theoretical physics, it gets beyond words very quickly. But the Hellier crew, the people from Planet Weird, have documented how a field investigation actually goes. I can say that with great confidence because I've done a, quite a number of field investigations myself. Sometimes they produce really dramatic results, and sometimes they seem to produce no results at all, except that synchronicities happen all over. Once you get on the path, you will find things happening that are very strange. And the weird things that happen where Hellier was concerned is they're filming it for real in something like real time, and these synchronicities begin to happen. I think there's one that's particularly spectacular. In fact, it's 
part of my daily overwordy Facebook post today by synchronicity or coincidence, if you believe there are such things as coincidences, it's the similarity between what happened in Hellier to one of the experiences, I believe it was Connor Randall, and the quasi-mythical quest for the Holy Grail. They're having, I probably will mangle the session a bit, so if they happen to be listening, my apology for doing my own version of it, especially to Connor, but he was doing what I would call scrying, because with the occult background I have, that's the term that comes to mind, using, I believe, a spirit box, which I've never used, but I've used similar devices, so I I know the drill. You're cut off from those around you, but they ask questions. You can't hear the questions, but you do hear the voices that the spirit box produces by doing something equivalent to a police scanner on those people who like to listen to pilots and cops and hospital workers and so forth. But they are eerily responsive. In other words, the person scrying doesn't even hear your questions, but they sometimes and frequently and more than chance will allow give specific answers. Well, Connor, I believe it was Connor, is scrying and giving rather specific answers, sitting on a porch in Hellier, Kentucky, or near Hellier, Kentucky, in a cabin that they had, I presume, rented and not crashed it. And suddenly he gets a vision of a tin cup, which is totally a non sequitur to what they were doing and what they were accomplishing. Except that a few days later, I presume, the entire crew is, at least all who were there, go out to this abandoned mine shaft, which is also, interestingly enough, connected to the enormous cave system that runs under Kentucky and on into West Virginia, following the entire route of a bunch of very strange phenomena that have, from Mothman to the famous Kentucky Goblins case of the 1950s. So it's, you know, it's a high incidence area. They go into this mine shaft, almost said cave, because it's connected to caves, and they only go really in this particular expedition into the lip of the cave mine shaft, which was fine with me because my advice to them post facto was, you guys should get helmets <laughs> and lights and maybe carry some water with you and maybe have somebody who stays outside because spelunking is a specialty unto itself. And I want them all to be healthy and happy. In any case, what I derived from what was going on with them in that particular location was there wasn't teenager graffiti all over the walls. There wasn't trash on the floor. And that tells me that whichever of the many entrances to otherware that you may find in Kentucky and West Virginia, which 
have to do with the fact that the coal industry has been in decline. Some of us would say that's a good thing, but not good for the people that wind up unemployed. And these towns are classical Appalachian poor and continue to be so. They haven't really come up since the Great Depression or the last Great Depression. In any case, it looked like they were in an untapped location. And there, I believe Connor himself found it, although it's on camera, so nobody was palming anything. There is the cup from his vision, a tin cup. And that was interesting enough in and of itself, just called a synchronicity. But it occurred to me that if you strip it to the bones, the legend of the search for the Holy Grail, is identical to what was going on there. First, there's the vision of the grail, which is unexpected, and then they find it. Well, how is a tin cup a grail? First of all, there's a great deal of controversy in traditional religious circles about what the actual, if there was an actual holy grail, was like. Was it one of these elaborate chalices that you see in high church churches? Or what would you expect from a poor carpenter and his poor companions having their last dinner together in Jerusalem circa 32 CE? It would be either a ceramic or a tin cup. And I did a little research and found a tin cup from the first century that was identical to the, at least in the Photographs, I haven't seen it in person, though I intend to, to the cup that they found and that duplicated the one that Connor envisioned. And if I can say something slightly controversial, but not meant to make anyone uncomfortable, I believe that Connor Randall is the only devout Roman Catholic among the people involved in the group. So it's a perfect match a perfect set of synchronicities, and is consistent with what I have found, the mythological element that draws people into the phenomena that I've seen year after year after year, all the way back to the 1960s when I've done field investigations myself. Let me mm. give you one example, if I may. Sure. Or am I talking too much? No, go for it. Okay. Let me think about it for just a second. Sure. Actually, I lied. I was taking a drink of water so that my voice stays young at heart. I notice it starts. The older you get, the more there's gravel in your voice. And finally, you turn into Bill Clinton and disappear. Yeah, yep. Or worse, Babe Ruth. You know how bad this voice sounds when it feels just as bad. And I shouldn't do that or I'll be talking that way all day. Where was I? Uh, an example of synchronicity outside of what we saw in Hellier with the Tin Cup. Okay, one, thank you. I need you to follow me around. And when I have those senior moments, you need to whisper in my ear. What you were talking about, Alan, was where is the restroom? <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. How could I forget that? Happy to do so. <laughs> so one of the field investigations that I did rather thoroughly was in the late 1960s. Actually, I can date it exactly because of an external event. The Brown Mountain Lights, which, fascinating though the lights themselves are, and in fact that even 
becomes a sort of secondary focus in the Hellier documentary. If one goes to look for the lights, one finds any number of really, really good UFO or UFO type cases in the vicinity of Brown Mountain, North Carolina. And I have been on two expeditions that started out looking for the lights and wound up interviewing, in one case, a person who I think qualifies as a classical contactee. And in other cases, very close, I believe they would be called type two encounters by the nuts and bolts ufology people. That is seeing things up close without actually doing anything that would involve communication with the phenomena. The guy who ran back in the day, the Outer Space Rock Shop Museum, had a story to tell us. His Outer Space Rock Shop Museum was on the uphill from the official viewing place, which is probably the worst place to look, for the Brown Mountain Lights. And this guy was a classical contactee. Now, he was a backwoods good old boy. And I don't know what you know from the far off island of San Diego, our future island, uh, mm-hmm. as the case may be. But a good old boy is not likely to have been schooled in classical mythology or Wagnerian opera. It's just not part of their thing. In fact, this guy was an old moonshiner who had settled on, which was not uncommon in that neck of the woods. And his name was Ralph Lael, L-A-E-L. He did write a sort of book, which he handed to us as long as we handed him a dollar. And it details a story that is more or less, again, stripped to the bare bones, identical with this story of Tannhauser's medieval actual knight who has a whole mythos surrounding him, seduction by the goddess Venus, and who descends into the Venusberg, the mountain of Venus, and sort of betrays his knightly oaths by indulging himself among these naked beings inside, which he claims he was taken to the inside of Brown Mountain, and then whisked off to the planet Venus, where everyone ran around naked, and I don't know what else they did, because it was a short book, but tantalizingly enough, they were not native to Venus. They had come there from a lost planet called Piwan, and of course, when you use the secret cipher, a word like Piwam is too good to not analyze. In any case, his story involving the planet Venus, you find in the story from the medieval sagas, 
that the knight gets seduced by the goddess Venus and goes into the Venusberg, which is filled with these sabaritic naked fairies who are all seductive. And he has a displacement in time. And when he comes out, he needs to repent from all that. Well, that's Lael's story in a nutshell, except instead of the goddess Venus, you substitute the planet Venus, and the story is the same story. So the question arose with me, is it at all possible that this guy has read some version of this? This is me in the 1960s, you know, 19, I think the last time I was there was Christmas Eve, 1968. I remember it well because I was there with Tim Beckley, Mr. UFO, as he likes to style himself, and the late, great, and good friend of mine, Jim Mosley. And Jim's, at that time, very young daughter, Betty. And I had the thought when we went all the way up to the best view spot you could possibly have to see the Brown Mountain Lights after interviewing Lale, I thought, this is a hell of a way for a 12-year-old girl to be spending Christmas Eve, but I didn't say anything because I didn't want to create any, you know, any bad vibes with Jim Mosley, not a person you want to do bad vibes with. But getting back to Lale, that Christmas Eve, which was also the occasion of the first circumlunar astronauts reading from the Bible, which Genesis 1, I think it was, appropriately enough. And when we got back to our hotel, we went to Tim Beckley's room, he turned on the TV, so we couldn't hear him calling his mother or something, I don't know. And it was showing a live picture from the orbit around the moon, and one of the astronauts was reading Genesis. And my first reaction was, Oh, God, something has gone wrong, and they're caught in orbit around the moon forever. But this was not the case. It was kind of a, I don't know if you'd call it a stunt, but let's say it was something that the NASA... <laughs> a ritual, maybe. Uh, yeah, I, that's a, better than what I was going to say. So we'll go with ritual that NASA cooked up to make everyone back home not think that we were violating God's holy space because if man was meant to go to the moon, God would have given us a ladder, right? <laughs> yes. But in any case, getting back to Lael, that story in 1968 is clearly a parallel to the mythos of the Venusberg. And that puts Brown Mountain in the same category as the Venusberg, a place where the Goblins and fairies lurk waiting to seduce the unwary. And how on earth does a backwoods moonshiner get that? Now, my synchronicity following that was the next day, some man in black shows up at my room door. Somehow or other, I think that's one of the very, very few times that Something was done to me because under most circumstances, even back then, I would immediately ask, who are you and how did you know where my room was and that I'm involved with Ralph Lale? Instead, 
I invited the guy in. He was well-dressed, middle-aged, dark suit, of course. And he proceeds to dump on Ralph Lael and warn me about his dangerousness, blah, 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 none of which made any sense to me, told me, well, we'll be in touch. And he left. And like within a minute or so, the spell was over. And I thought, why didn't I ask him for a business card? Why didn't I ask him, how did you know I was here, that I was visiting Lael? And what was your possible motive for dumping on Lael to me? But that never occurred to me as long as he was there. And right. in all these years that I've been involved in this stuff, that's happened to me maybe three times. Mm. And the other times were much more mundane. One was an argument that we won't get into with a guy now deceased who was had been a high-level Scientologist who had a drug problem, so they kicked him out. You know, kicking somebody out doesn't mean that they lose their skills. Right. And he hoodooed me. I mean, I have hoodooed people when, you know, circumstances were absolutely life or death. But this guy hoodooed me into believing something about him that simply wasn't true. And I didn't wake up from that, so to speak, for months afterwards, and only because I had recorded him on tape saying the opposite of what I had come to believe, because the best thing I can say about Scientology is that its techniques work. <laughs> the worst thing I can say about Scientology is that its techniques work. Touche, touche. Man, great stories. Those are great examples of how the mythos works and how these archetypes overlap in different stories and different times and spaces. And that's also a very kind of classic thing with the Men in Black encounter, this uh, kind of trance state that seems to come over a person. And man, time is really flying by here. And I wanted to ask you about some things that you have in the book, because it is just so deep. And when it comes to the back and forth with these beings and the groups of people that are involved in contact on both sides, you write, often when a person or institution allied with the historical great white brotherhood, again, problematic term, but you know, the, the light side approaches success or comes into possession of certain aspects of transcendent wisdom, something intervenes. That something has been identified as the man in black the men in black, the black lodges, or the black lodge. That they need to do this and that they often fail in their efforts is itself an indication that A, the black lodge is opposed by something else equally as strong, and B, they are afraid of something we might find out about them, about their opposition, about ourselves, or all three. And of course, it's been a while since you wrote this, but can you elaborate on those indications? What do you think they might be afraid that we'd find out? It does seem like there's something special about people. We're fearful of them, but they also seem to have this weird curiosity about us. Or there's something there's something odd about that dynamic. And I'm just curious uh, if you could elaborate on on what you think is is going on there with this uh, relationship. Yeah, I should say that because I've started to say it a couple of times and wandered away from it in that septuagenarian way. But after Hellyer appeared 
first on Amazon and then on YouTube for free for nothing. Well, not for nothing, but free. The very thing that I had hoped that would happen 20 years earlier has been happening, which is people have been having a large number of synchronicities, have been getting co-participation in the ritual that Hellier is, and it's spread out like waves. It also has increased dramatically the book sales of Complete Secret Cipher of the Euphonauts. And that, you know, that's good for me, but I think it's ultimately good for the public because people, for once, are getting off of their chairs and are motivated, perhaps because Hellier is so motivating, to do their own investigations. So I didn't mean to change the subject. It's not really a change. I asked myself then and got my answer a lot later. First of all, I do express in the book, I believe, that black lodges haven't always been black. They are high-level magicians who know a great deal about the phenomena and how to manipulate it and how to become it, who at some point in their career wore a monopoly on truth. And at that point, at that crucial point, instead of being the sharing that I described in the Guardians or the Great White Brotherhood, so-called, or the secret chiefs of the Third Order, they decide to obfuscate and to keep other people back. And once they make that decision, whether it's a conscious decision or whether it's just slowly, incrementally coming into being, at some ill-defined point, they become a black lodge and start fighting dirty and deflecting attention from the real McCoy to what that guy, I think, was doing to me in North Carolina, which is trying to discourage me from taking an interest in the Lale case and seeing it for what it is. He failed, but not without having manipulated me. That was low level. That was what Alistair Crowley called a black brother, which doesn't necessarily exempt him from the same label, to being a Black Lodge, which is a community of these higher beings that have turned towards the dark side of the Force. What was that? Hmm. The dark side of the Force. I think humor is the only thing that keeps you sane in this work. That's the parenthetic thing that I, I do that often leaves people suspecting that I'm amused by all this, which I, <laughs> uh, I am and I'm not, because I think that it is a life or death struggle for the future of humanity, which is nothing to sneeze at. Right. But I always wondered, how does that happen, that people who start out on the same path that winds up being ascended masters protective of humanity at some point turned dark. And I saw it personally in the alleged ancient order of antiquity, which I spent 20 years in, 
and I'm not going to specify in this context, but I saw it by degrees, pun intended, turn dark. And it turned dark because it became cultic and jealous of its specialness instead of, as we free illuminists say, sharing and co-participating in illumination with the rest of humanity. And it just can happen. Power corrupts. Absolute power corrupts absolutely. If an organization is top-heavy, it will tend in that direction. If it has no supreme leaders or supreme dogmatic rules, it's much less likely to happen. But the dark side of the force, for using Lucas's term, is very seductive. Yes. And how deep do you think these black lodges or this dark side of the force, this men in black phenomenon is attached to, how deeply embedded in government or military intelligence do you think these lodges are? I mean, having looked at this stuff since the 60s, man, there's a lot of crazy stuff through the 60s, 70s, 80s. And now, of course, uh, To the Stars Academy basically has come out of this military intelligence nexus. And I'm just curious your thoughts on, on that, because politics and the government is obviously a third rail here. And if these lodges are so illuminated as to have all this insight that, you know, the common man or even the common politician wouldn't have, how in control are these lodges of, of culture and of the general narrative? I think of the general narrative only in that kind of secondary way that all of these, quote, history-like, unquote, TV programs, many of which I've been on, that supposedly involve investigations of government projects devoted to UFOs or strange phenomena or ghosts or whatever, are not. And they really put people on the wrong track. Red Herrings. Yeah. And I'm prepared to say that I personally believe, with a couple of exceptions, the notion that the government, you know, no specification beyond that, is in possession of more of the real McCoy secrets than planet weird people is wrong. I probably know a lot more about the actual nature of UFOs and related phenomena than anybody connected with any government project, the Navy's more current project, or going back to Project Sign, Grudge, Blue Book. These were very, very small operations. They they were three people and a secretary, you know, and the secretary probably knew more than the Colonel put in charge of the project. It's just not where the action is because the assumption made by the government was either this is a nuts and bolts phenomenon, by which I mean that it's a physical presence of alien beings from another planet that came to Earth, to borrow a term, with powers and abilities far beyond those of mortal man. Or it's a misidentification of natural phenomena, or it's a series of hoaxes. Those 
are deflections. None of those things are true. One of my great ponderables that I don't really have a good answer for, at least psychologically, is why on earth, when not UFOs per se, because they go back to the dawn of the planet, I guess, but certainly to the dawn of humanity, why when they show up in public consciousness shortly after World War II, is the immediate response that these are visitors from another planet, and that has been reinforced over and over and over again. It's not an impossibility, although I think people who espouse that rarely confront the distances between stars, let alone galaxies. Used to be, oh, they're men from Mars. Well, we know a good deal more about Mars than we did in 1947. It's more likely that our earthly spacecraft that go to Mars are the phenomena on Mars than Martians are the phenomena on Earth. So it's moved out to Sirius, which is a hot, relatively new star, unlikely to be an absolute source of any kind of intelligent life, and then on out into the universe where distances are awesome. It's not impossible because technology can always have breakthroughs that we haven't had yet. You know, warp drive is one of the devices that science fiction uses to get by that, but we don't have a warp drive, and there may not be a possibility of that. But even if there is, and even if there is life on other planets, why would the immediate assumption for something seen either on or near the Earth only, never seen deep in space, all that excitement last year when that, whatever it was, Oumuamua, as it was called in Hawaii, and possibly an asteroid or who knows what exactly it was, nobody does, came from a extra solar source. It was the first time anything like that had ever been spotted. An enormous speculation, an enormous, well, there you go. It's not a common thing for things to come creeping in from outside the solar system simply because there are vast distances between solar systems. But immediately, people in 1947, from Kenneth Arnold on, are talking about aliens from other planets. Right. And I'm wondering why that was the leap. Why to that? Why not, oh, this is a religious phenomena and we all need to go back to church or whatever. Well, it could have been just another one of those red herrings because, yes, it does appear that the government or military intelligence is obsessed with the nuts and bolts aspect on the surface, but the CIA is no stranger to experiments and consciousness. The blue blood elite are not strangers to seances, communing with the nine and this kind of stuff. So I think at a deeper level, they've connected this stuff. I think the CIA is is well aware that Consciousness and channeling and summoning is a lot closer to what these creatures are than spacecraft. They won't tell us that, but there's documents that show back in the 50s and 60s, there were 
they were pretty on this thing. They were hovering over the target, it seems. So I can only imagine since that they they haven't wised up. They're not going to project that outwardly to the rest of the world, but I think they know, don't you? No, I think they probably know less than the most sophisticated people in research. But what they do is instructive. I had a, an interesting conversation with Dewey Fournay, who was the Pentagon monitor for Project Blue Book, back during the period where UFOs were seen over restricted airspace. This is long pre-9-11, restricted airspace in D.C. That would be over the White House, and Pentagon, etc. And there was a tremendous UFO flap. It's how UFOs first came to my attention, in fact, because my father was going on about it because it was headline news in the summer, in July of 1952. After that, Orne informed me, and I have since seen documentation for, you have to get back into the mentality of the time, the red-baiting notion that the Soviet Union was looking for an opportunity to attack us with their nuclear bombers, of which they probably had three with propellers, and that private UFO organizations, said the CIA in their 1953 panel, could be infiltrated by communists. Again, this is the spirit of those times, the McCarthy era and used to create an artificial UFO flap that would mask a Soviet all-out first strike attack. And therefore, said the CIA, we need to do something to suppress these organizations because they're too vulnerable to Soviet influence. They also, by the way, thought the same thing about the PTA. So, you know, we need to put these things in relative terms. That may explain some of the early, really anomalous men in black cases. It certainly may explain some of the explanations you have coming out of the military. But when you talk about, and I assume you're talking about the government program to see if LSD could cause people to become basically using it as a hypnotic. Right. MKUltra goes a lot deeper, but that's definitely a threat of MKUltra. Yeah, but who or what is MKUltra? Is it a government program or is it something that masks itself as a government program? My contact with this phenomena, and when I say phenomena here, I'm including those who investigate or purport to investigate the anomalies which have emerged over the last, well, since World War II, my whole lifetime today, is that it's a very, very secondary thing to the government. It's a very, very big thing to other interests. And the reason I say that is because every program that is government-related, not counting secret weapons programs that are mistaken for extraterrestrial vehicles, which I think, like Area 51, the government has encouraged that. They'd rather have people chasing something from the planet Piwam than 
riveting their interest on, let's say, the B-1 bomber that was probably developed at one of those facilities that are said to be secret alien bases. If there are secret alien bases, they're not in tandem with the government, I don't think. And that's based on my 50-plus years' experience in dealing with this and having gone through the Blue Book files, which I did at the courtesy of the invitation of the head of the Senate Armed Services Committee at that time, who happened to be my senator, who I happened to have caught at home and expressed the view that the Blue Book files after Blue Book was closed needed to be preserved. So I wound up getting a chance to have a look at them. You may be right, and I may be on the wrong path there. Most of what I say, I'm confident of. Where the government is concerned, I'm confident of nothing. (laughs) However, that said, my guess is that the significant work that is being done is so ethereal, involving synchronicities, involving investigators becoming part of the phenomena, in involving stuff that clearly is not of this world. If there is any government involvement, it goes beyond government involvement because it undermines the whole notion of a three-dimensional reality being all that there is in the universe and all that explains whatever it's supposed to be explaining. I don't think there is any truth in that. And I think that if there were a big government interest, you would never have seen a public development of quantum physics because quantum physics kind of undermines the whole notion of 3D reality. Fair, fair. Well, Man, as we are wrapping this up, given that the secret cipher was written in the 90s, you know, 20 plus years ago, are there insights you've gained since then that you would have added or any way that you would would change it today? I know you've been out of the game a little while when it comes to this stuff. You haven't been embedded in ufology, but would you make any changes or addendums today? Mm. I wasn't aware that I had been out of ufology when I've been out of is the transition between publishing the little newsletters that you have to collate and fold and stamp and seal and get out to your 300 subscribers, as opposed to posting something today on Facebook or on your own website and reaching tens of thousands of people. Fair, fair. It took me a while to make that transition, but I haven't ever been out of the occult or ufology or anything else. What I was up until about 15 years ago was limited as to how much I could do with UFOs because I got flack from the supposed magical order that I was affiliated with. So getting out of that, as I put it at the time, was a bit like getting out of jail. So from that point on, I have integrated the various interests openly, whereas during that period, I was somewhat reticent as it had been discouraged by the powers that be not, (laughs) he said cryptically. Right. 
Fair enough. Yes, that's uh, a good clarification. So you wouldn't really change the secret cipher or add anything to it that you've learned in the past couple decades. No, I will say this, that uh, when I was approached well before Hellier was even Hellier 1, I believe, by Paranoia Press about getting out a combined edition, I said, oh, I, you know, something that I think has run its course, but I think a combined edition would save people money on buying both, and they are sort of kind of out of print. I don't know that that term even applies anymore because so much of the printing is done by print-on-demand services, as many people will tell you. Therefore, there is no such thing as out of print as such, unless you pull it out of print, which happened with one of my books. I think the distance between the two was a mask, because when I wrote Secret Cipher and Secret Rituals, I was on a sabbatical in my hometown and in a rough period of my life where I concentrated on pretty much nothing else. And they were written essentially as one book. And now, for the first time, it is published as one book, The Complete Secret Cipher of the Euphodons. Would I change a paragraph here or a paragraph there? I don't think there's anybody who's ever written anything that's been published that wouldn't brush it up a little bit. But would I change any of the fundamentals involved? Not at all. And I believe there's a new introduction that uh, sort of clarifies the entire issue. Certainly the old introduction didn't clarify anything. Mm -hmm. Right on. Yes, well, I loved it, and it definitely flowed. They definitely are a great set to have in one volume. And this has been a, a wild ride, man. I really enjoyed it. I know you have several other books and a website full of even more material. Could you tell people about some of this work and where to get it before we really call it in? Okay. I always say the best way to get to my website, which is being transferred to a new server, is just to spell my name right on Google. Google my name, Alan, A-L-L-E-N, not one of those others, Greenfield, G-R-E-E-N-F-I-E-L-D. And since I've been on the Internet, since before it was the Internet, you'll find a plethora of piñatas. Well, not a plethora of piñatas, but you'll find a plethora of references, including my website, my Facebook page, and Mr. Zuckerberg doesn't allow you to have more than 5,000 friends. So I have my 5,000 friends, but occasionally I lose a friend. So you can get in there and you can always just follow the page. It's updated virtually daily. And I always come up with something pretty weird and fascinating to post every single day on Facebook. My site is more illuminating than that. And if you still catch it, I think it still has another month in its old location which is very dated, but nevertheless, if you Google my name, you will find my WordPress site, my MindSpring, which <laughs> an extinct server. Nevertheless, that's <laughs> it goes back to like 1995. The site's been up since then, but it's been, you know, revised and revised and revised. Prepare to be shocked. 
There's lots of shocking stuff on it. <laughs> and finally, the other book that is current that doesn't sell anywhere nearly as well as The Complete Secret Life of Euphonauts is, as I mentioned earlier, God Never Does the Same Thing Twice, which is my gonzo book. I pulled out all of my stops, said, what have I learned about reality in the 73 years I have been incarnate here? And that's what it is. It's me talking to you. So if anybody cares what my intuition and opinions are, you might want to get yourself a copy of God Never Does the Same Thing Twice, which, again, is not not a religious book. It is unless Gonzo is a religion. <laughs> well, to some people it is, but either way, very, very cool. I know you've had a really deep and rich and exciting and adventurous life, so I definitely would be interested. And Say so far. That makes <laughs> I always say it's been interesting so far. <laughs> you never know what tomorrow will bring. Right, right. Touche. Well, this has been a really good time. Very provocative. I really appreciate spending some time with me today and keep up the great work. I'll do my very best. You too. Rock me like a hurricane, higher side chatters. The secret cipher of the euphonauts finally revealed. Alan Greenfield with one hell of a premise. The very foundation of secret societies and occult orders being built around contact protocols to communicate with the what's-its and the what-have-yous in the shadows? I like it. And what are grimoires? But usually, exactly that. At least in part. And now, of course, this is another THC episode that was recorded pre-Corona Chaos. And I have to apologize to Alan because I know he was anxious to be able to share this with his followers. I think he was happy with how it turned out. And it was all ready to go the day after things started to get taken up to such a level that I just couldn't release another show that didn't address it. Like I said before, it'd be if I had four shows pre-recorded and then 9-11 happened. You're not going to release four episodes of a show of this nature that don't talk about that big, unprecedented thing we just experienced. So first I put my own statement out because it was the fastest thing I could do. Then we talked around it with Ross Ben because he was on the schedule. Then we spent some time with David Crow, and then we went over it again with Gordon and Chris. So I think we can start to get back to business around here a little bit. Believe me, this corona crackdown is an unprecedented thing that has me concerned that it won't be over soon. I said it from that beginning statement. Now that they got us all inside, when is the virus gone? I just don't know. I don't think we're getting out so quickly. It's not just going to be two weeks. And of course, it's going to come up in every show that we record during this time period. And I'm catering some more of the guests lineup to be more in the medical expert space. But I also think we might be getting mentally exhausted by this, and maybe a conversation about demon aliens is a nice break. Although I am going to do a little live video webinar session with Gordon to go over the information we've both been digesting since that interview. 
the material he's been putting in his coronavirus newsroom and some of the stuff that I've been putting in the plus forum, along with some other members now at this point, which is great because I was just hoping to kick that news share off. But regardless, if you want to get in on that live stream that we're going to be doing, I will email the link out to plus members. It's not something I ever really do unless we have to, like for a technical reason, emailing all the plus members in mass. I might have done it five times over five years, but I don't know how else to get you the link in a timely manner. I can't just expect you to randomly check the website, especially when so many people listen to the podcast through an app. But if you are hearing this show as it comes out on Friday, I guess you have some time to sign up for Plus if you want that email, but I'm going to email that link out on Saturday. And us Bubble Boys will be breaking it down for you over Bubble Tea. (laughs) Monday evening, 6 p.m. Pacific time. You do have to sign up because we're probably going to go over Zoom's size limit with our powers combined. And it seems to be a better practice for not crashing the system if we have everyone pre-registered. So be on the lookout for that email. Gordon is actually doing a lot of these tea party webinars, as he's calling them. And then I said, bubble boys, and it just works. Bubble tea party. (laughs) But I do think this is going to be a fun one because we've both been digesting just a ton of information, but who hasn't, right? Anyway, as for today's show, I had just finished Hellier when Olav from Paranoia messaged me about the release of the complete secret cipher of the Euphonauts and asked if I'd like to talk to Alan, and of course I jumped on it. Not because I really loved Hellier all that much, to be honest. I mean, I loved the first episode a lot, but I thought it kind of fizzled out a bit from there. I do understand the meaning and the value and the surprise of getting hit with a high dose of synchronicity when you're in that paranormal vortex or feeling like you've been led down a path, but it's kind of like explaining your dreams to someone. I don't think it translates as well to others or to TV. But when Alan says it's a very genuine and accurate depiction of a field investigation and the weirdness involved, I'm sure it is. I don't doubt that at all. And for that reason, it probably does hold a special place in paranormal media history. But it was the aspects that related to Alan and the secret cipher that I did find most interesting. And when I got deep into the book itself, man, there is just so much interesting material and a ton of great lines. I wish we could have hit more of those quotes to have Alan elaborate on that I could have pulled out of my outline, but it was a little tough to keep him on track, which I still thought was pretty fun. But I only asked a couple questions in the first hour. So in the second, I scrapped a lot of the stuff that was planned to wade us slowly into deep waters, and I just jumped to the last page and thought, all right, let's get into it. The clock is ticking by a lot faster than I expected, and I am really happy with some of that stuff. Very provocative. And those deeper levels, these deeper waters I'm talking about, they're all kind of wrapped up in these two secret factions and the spiritual battle for humanity. And it's really a great compliment to some of the stuff we got into with Lone Milo Duquette a few weeks back, because compromising or interacting 
with that human power of creation is a big part of that mix as well. So the first hour, we kind of set the stage, talked about Hellier a bit and the Grail quest parallels. But in the Plus show, we got into the Greys, sexual fluids and sodomy secretions, Wilhelm Reich, Orgon and the aliens, the importance of banishing rituals, messages from beings that come from worlds that have been conquered by the Greys, transcending dimensions via the Enochian process, and just all kinds of interesting stuff. And it kind of is a shame, because I was really, really psyched to get this episode out to the world before reality got turned upside down. But you know, this too shall pass, and then maybe we can be interested in stuff like this again. But if you want to dive deeper into Alan's book, I definitely recommend it. It's got a ton of interesting content in it. It's very detail-oriented, somewhat over my head, but I tried my best to hang on for that ride. And it's basically two books in one now. With that, big thanks to Alan again, and apologies for the delay. I told him a little over a week, and it's been much longer than that. I love you guys. Hope you're all maintaining your sanity out there. Plus members, be on the lookout for that email if you want to join the bubble tea party with Gordon on Monday. And I'll talk to you then. Your move, what sits, what have yous, UFO knots, and secret keepers of the Black Lodge. Your fucking Woke up this morning with light in my eyes. And then realized it was dark outside It was a light coming down from the sky I don't know who or why Must be those strangers that come every night Saucer-shaped light Put people uptight Leave blue-green footprints That glow in the dark I hope they get home
Hi.